G'day, this is Mark Pesci, and welcome to Series 9 of This Week in Startups Australia. Throughout Series 9, we're going to focus on one question. What is it that makes a startup successful? Is it a great idea? Is it a great team? Is it great customers? Or something else altogether? This is an important question for startups, a fundamental question. And on this series, we're looking for answers. We're talking to people who have been successful, asking them how it happened. And that part of our story continues with this episode as we talk to someone who has taken their startup from zero to public. Tim Fong was a guest on our very first episode of This Week in Startups Australia, and he's just taken his startup, Airtasker, public. What has Tim learned about success? That's what we'll find out on this episode of This Week in Startups Australia. This Week in Startups Australia is sponsored by User Testing. Experience what your customer experiences with User Testing. Request your free trial at usertesting.com slash twista and get the fast human insights you need to make more informed decisions at scale. This Week in Startups Australia is also sponsored by Squarespace. From websites and online stores to marketing tools and analytics, Squarespace is the all-in-one platform to build a beautiful online presence and run your business. Go to squarespace.com twista for a free trial. Twista is sponsored by Odoo, a fully customizable and fully integrated suite of business apps that lets you build and scale your stack as you build and scale your business. Go to odoo.com slash Twista to check it out. Twista's production partner for Series 9 is UTS Startups, where they're equipping a new breed of startup founders by inspiring students to launch their own venture and build a foundation for a successful career. To learn more about the UTS Startups program, go to startups.uts.edu.au. On the very first episode of This Week in Startups Australia, I invited on two guests who I knew would give us a great overview of the startup landscape. The first, Ian Gardner, had done a lot of work to create the thriving startup ecosystem here in Australia. But following him, I got the best example I could find of a startup entrepreneur who was firing on all cylinders, Tim Fung. It has been a heck of a journey. It has been a journey into success. So it is with pleasure I get to welcome Tim back to Twister. Welcome back, Tim. Mark, thanks for having me. And I'm glad to be the number two person on your podcast. That's an honor. (laughs) And not in second place, but we wanted to (laughs) set the scene before we actually brought an entrepreneur in who was working in the scene. Now, We have talked two times on the first show and then about halfway through about three years ago. You since then have taken Airtasker public 
on the ASX. What Can you describe your journey that led you to the point where you said, okay, we are ready to do this? Sure. So um, I guess, uh, you know, going back to the very beginning of Airtasker, um, we started this journey, um, we came up with the idea for Airtasker in 2011 and, and launched in, in 2012. Um, so it's been a, you know, nine years plus uh, journey along that um, along that route. And, you know, the first few years was, as with many startups, it was all just about raising capital, going as fast as we can, burning a lot of money and, you know, are growing it at all costs. And in 2019, we made a decision to um, to make sure that, you know, we were building a, a sustainable uh, company, i.e. a company that wasn't reliable, reliant on external capital. Um, so we um, we got the company, you know, very quickly into a, a state of profitability, which was which was super exciting, coming from burning two million dollars a month to um, becoming profitable in about seven months. Um, so that was a um, that was a great lesson and journey, and we were really thankful that we did that um, because, of course, in, in March 2020, um, the COVID pandemic um, hit, and the initial impact of that was a decline uh, in marketplace activity. And, and boy, were we thankful that we had gotten the company into a state of, of profitability so that we could um, we could absorb that. Um, but then what started to happen was really, really exciting is we started to see, because of our, our um, model is a marketplace of customers and taskers who are independently working together, the community really adapted to the COVID situation. And actually we saw in 2020 um, customers asking for different stuff, taskers being empowered to go and solve those problems in the way that they saw fit and we actually saw an acceleration of growth in 2020 to be the fastest growing year for Airtask than ever before. And so um, in September of, of 2020, as it was coming to a close, we started to get our, our skates on and thinking about international expansion even further. And so um, in doing that, we thought, you know, how can we access agile capital and be in a position where, you know, if we do some work up front, we can, we can get the capital more quickly. And so um, that was the decision to go public. And um, being a public company, I think, means that you do a huge amount of um, upfront heavy listing, heavy lifting to, you know, get into a state where you can be ASX listed. But then once you're going, oh boy, can you move faster? So, uh, for example, we raised some capital uh, in April, and it took us, you know, a couple of days to be able to raise twenty million dollars instead of, you know, uh, what takes often weeks or months um, for private venture capital. All right, take us through this because I think. Most listeners have as an aspiration to be able to go public someday, but most of us don't talk to entrepreneurs who have actually done it. When you make that decision, when you pull the trigger, which you did last September, what were the steps that you had to take to get you to the bell ringing on the ASX the day you went public? Well, it was um, for us. Um, it was actually quite. Um, it was actually quite a smooth journey uh, for us. Uh, but I'm sure that you know, depending on what state you're in before you go on that journey, it would be a different amount of uh, amount of work for us. Well, look, what we referred to it internally as uh, we called it growing up. And actually, you know, we we kind of um, in a cute way called it glowing up, and we had a whole glow party around it to talk about you know how how positive it is that to grow up as a, as an organization. But um, it's actually just doing many of the things that you probably should be doing anyway, um, but doing it with a, with a lot more rigor. So, uh, for example, um, with your financials, you have to move into an audited state of uh, financials, which just means that your accounting has to meet certain kinds of standards. Um, you know, people are going to check to make sure that you've 
double and triple check the way that you're accounting for revenues and all that kind of things, which we all know in like startup land, it can kind of be like, you know, some funny metrics that people tend to use, like adjusted revenues, excluding blah, blah, and blah. Um, so, you know, there's a whole financial part. There's an IT security part, uh, which I think is, you know, a pretty healthy thing to go through um, in terms of making sure that you're covering off uh, for a lot of the risks that can come about. Um, and then I would say on the people and organizational front, there's also a whole bunch of things that you have to work out. So a um, bit of a um, tightening up of things like ESS, you know, ESOP plans and employee equity uh, plans, um, salaries, uh, making sure that everyone's paid at, you know, the right and at market levels and things like that. Um, so it was a lot of growing up uh, to do for us as an organization. But um, in the end, I think it was actually something that was quite healthy and something that, you know, when you're reaching the eight or nine years um, as a as a company, um, these are all things that you should really be doing anyway. So it's a bit of a, a wake up call for that. And I have been working in startups <clears throat> so long now that in fact seven to ten years was considered the normal runway when I started working in startups. Right? It's only I think there was some deformation first because of the web bubble that startups could go go into an IPO very quickly. And we see, of course, some of that happening today with the SPACs that are happening in America where people are creating these special purpose vehicles. All right. How has being a public company, now that you're on the other side of that, how has it changed the way that you do business, that you think about the business, that you operate the business? Well, I think it's uh, first thing I think that that's important to call out as a public listed company is that there are a lot of myths that are sort of spun amongst sort of uh, founders in in you know Silicon Valley and in the um, you know the founder uh, space in Sydney as well um, about what being public actually uh, involves. So I'll just give you one of those examples. I always thought that you had to do like a quarterly forecast and like submit that to the ASX or submit that to the market. And then, you know, people would measure you against a quarterly forecast. Um, that simply isn't true. Um, that's not something that you have to do as a publicly listed company at all. And, um, and so, you know, there's all these things that people just make assumptions about that, that aren't true. Um, but in terms of what you do have to do, um, I think there is a lot of uh, rigor around um, being more time bound. So when you're thinking about, um, when you're thinking about what you're going to achieve over the next six months, you know, in your half yearly um, uh, results and then in your yearly results, and then thinking about, you know, one or two years even further than that, there is a lot more rigor that has to come up front to sort of plan all of those uh, things out. Um, and I think for us as a company, that's actually been a really useful um, advice, you know, a really useful a device for us to be a lot more disciplined with how we think about um, planning for the future. I think it's easy as a as a startup company to um, to go, oh, it's all just too complex to do all of this sort of forecasting and planning, so let's not do it and let's just sort of fly week to week or fortnight to fortnight. And I think that there is a lot to be said about the value of, of upfront um, planning. So I'd say that's the main difference. You, you, you do need to get those time bounds um, a little bit more rigorous. It almost sounds like you're outlining attention, though, because you talked about being able to raise $20 million very quickly. But at the same time, you're talking about having a much longer planning time horizon. So you clearly have the capacity to get cash to implement new programs in the business or growth or whatever. But you also then have to be more deliberate about those decisions. Decisions. That's right. I think I think um, you definitely are making some sort of like baseline commitments to, to growing your, you know, to to the shareholders that you've made, um, you know, you've made upfront commitments to, and you do, do have to make sure that you follow through on those commitments because I think one of the things with um, 
with being a public company is, you know, you're earning the trust of your shareholders and you're sort of earning that every single day. So um, you do need to be, you know, making sure that you follow through with those commitments. That said, as you see new opportunities being able to layer on top of those uh, commitments, that's where you're able to, you know, move fast, raise money much more quickly and be able to keep leveling up um, at a much faster rate um, compared to, say, venture capital, where you'd have to plan that out three or four months ahead, um, go out and speak to that you know, group of investors, probably spend three months um, trying to convince them because they know that they're going to be stuck in this for the next five years or, or more. Um, and, and, you know, that, that's, um, that's where actually being private in some sense is less agile from that perspective. Now, one of the things that I think entrepreneurs often worry about is that when they go public, that there are more chefs in the kitchen and that, yes, you have a public company, but you're losing some of the control. How was it worth it from your point of view? Or are you used to, are you embracing this idea of having more voices around? Well, I think overall, uh, the first thing is I think that the market really does love to have a founder-driven story. Um, and, you know, there is a premium that you would get uh, from a company that's driven by a mission and something that is like personally important to the founder. Um, and for me, um, you know, what Airtask is all about is um, creating opportunities for people to work, to be able to create an income for themselves, to be able to create, you know, jobs for themselves and to be able to have purpose. And I think that resonates uh, well with the market and having conviction around your mission is actually something that's appreciated, um, I would say. Um, on the flip side of that, I do think it's important to kind of acknowledge there that, you know, the companies that tend to have these like really like onerous founders locked in, preference shares, voting rights times a thousand all those. Oh, you mean like, like Facebook? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, you know, there, there's plenty of examples around yeah. there. But, you know, two of the really um, the biggest ones are probably WeWork and Uber. Um, and I think in both of those cases, um, you can see that, you know, if people stop, um, you know, if founders stop listening um, and stop um, engaging with other people who are stakeholders of, um, of their mission and, and what they're doing, then there's no amount of like legal protections or anything that's going to make that tenable. Um, and, you know, that's why there's a change of the guard at, at Uber and, and at WeWork um, because, of, uh, because of that. So um, I think, you know, that sort of like legal protection route is not really the way that you want to build and gather the support of people. You want to do it by engaging with them and, um, and having their voices heard. All right. What advice would you give to any entrepreneurs who are listening to the show who are entertaining their own thoughts about going public? I think the first thing, you know, I, I think it is worthwhile calling out. It is a one-way door. That is uh, for sure. Like once you start going down that route, the amount of cost, momentum, and then, you know, the act of listing itself is not something that you're going to walk away from easily. So you do have to get comfortable with the, you know, the fact that you are going down that one-way door. Um, I think, though, it is worthwhile saying that it's really important to sort of uh, figure out what are the facts versus what are the myths uh, that are out there. And um, a lot of the literature that's out there um, that, that goes towards startups <clears throat> and, and other founders is from people who are predominantly based in the private sector, you know, in the private investment sector, whether that's venture capitalists, angel investors, um, things like that. And so you're probably hearing about one side of the story um, most of the time. You know, you're hearing about what are the benefits of staying private? What are the benefits of um, venture capital and, and bringing smart money into the company and all those kind of things? Um, but I think it is worthwhile just kind of like trying to get a balanced view of the world. 
Um, so speaking to people who are in, um, for example, publicly listed um, investment, there are a huge number of like really well-educated long-term investors in um, in the public space. For example, we have a, a fund that is um, called Firetrail, which is one of our lead investors um, in the public markets. And uh, they're as educated about our um, uh, as about marketplaces and Airtasker's story and product as much as any uh, venture capitalist would likely be as well. So, um, yeah, worthwhile just getting the facts from both the public market as well as the private market. All right. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. When we return from the break, we will be asking Tim his secrets for success. We'll be right back. Twista Series 9 is proudly sponsored by User Testing. Are you launching a new product, developing a new prototype, rolling out a new campaign? User Testing lets you see, hear, and talk to your customers to understand how they experience your brand, your product, and your services. Put yourself in your customer's shoes with real-time video feedback from User Testing. The User Testing Human Insight Platform allows you to target your exact audience, ask them any question, or give them a task to perform. It's a tech platform that connects brands with their target audiences to get feedback on any experience. Testers can get paid $10 for their time, and they aren't doing this to get rich. They're doing this because they really want to help make your products and services better. Watch, listen, and observe the reactions so that you can connect the dots and keep improving. You'll get feedback within hours and strengthen your relationships with your customers. Request your free trial at usertesting.com twista and get the fast human insights you need to make more informed decisions at scale. And we're back on This Week in Startups Australia. We're speaking with Airtasker founder and CEO, Tim Fung. So, Tim... The big theme of Series 9 is success and what startups need to do to achieve success. By any external measure, Airtasker and you have been wholly successful. You are now ticked every box. So as you reflect on that success, what have you learned that you needed to do to give yourself the best chances for success? I think that one of the most important things for success is um, as a leader to be able to like live on that knife edge. Um, and what I mean by that is that um, often, you know, um, it, it becomes something that we want to do is like just reduce complexity in our brains. And so we're looking for answers. Like how do I take this um, ambiguous thing, this, um, this spectrum of, uh, of possibilities and just come up with the answer. Just give me one answer. Um, and I think that often when we do that, we end up bookending and we take extremes of, of, of something. Like, you know, we can say, like, the most important thing in a company is culture. Don't have to worry about strategy. Just worry about culture. And then, you know, we spend all our time doing culture and no time doing strategy. Um, or, or the reverse is true. We spend all our time on strategy and no time on culture. And I think as a founder, I think one of the most important things is to be able to get comfortable with living in that ambiguity. And being able to live on that knife edge of not of knowing that it's not extremely one way and it's not extremely the other way, but to be able to like form your own opinions and, and form your own position. 
Um, and then being comfortable with moving that knife edge along that spectrum and, you know, being able to go left and right, um, but ultimately to be really confident in your own um, position. And as your company grows and there are more voices around you, I think you can tend to, um, you know, lose some of that confidence sometimes and kind of think, oh, wow, I'm bringing in this person who's, you know, worked for 10 years and done all of these successful things as an executive in the company. Let's listen to that person because that will reduce the ambiguity. Um, but I think it's important to back yourself, be able to live on that knife edge and, and have the confidence in your own opinions. I feel as though you've really touched on something that's really deep here because a lot of people get uh, an idea, particularly an entrepreneur will get a very fixed idea of what they're doing. And that deprives them of that ability to be a little bit ambiguous about how they're going to achieve that goal, how they're going to get there. But we always, I think, equate ambiguity with this lingering sense that we're going to to lose it, that we're going to fail because we haven't taken a position. So is that the knife edge that you're talking about? Exactly right. I think, um, you know, there's kind of two ends to that, as there is with all of this, which is you need to be comfortable in that ambiguity and know that uh, there's this gray space that you're in. But I think it's also important at some point to be able to draw your position on that scale or draw your position in that gray area and then balance on that. Um, And I, you know, I do think of it as a bit of a balancing act. Um, and then you also have to be comfortable with from time to time being able to move that knife edge somewhere else and being able to balance on, on that position. And that does mean often kind of coming back and saying, you know where I was yesterday, where I had high conviction in that? Well, actually, today I have high conviction over here and I'm going to balance on, on this. And I think that that's the way that the world works and that's the way that our brains are kind of wired up to need to find a position within an ambiguous space. So, yes, you do need to combine those two things, taking a position but also accepting the ambiguity. Now, as you say, you've been bringing people into the organization. You want to listen to them. What do you look for in other people, whether they're business partners or employees or other startups, as the markers that tell you that they will be successful? Well, I think, um, you know, it's often referred to as like the growth mindset. Um, And I think a a big part of having um, someone who has a growth mindset that can keep uh, growing with the company and keep learning new things is, um, again, that ability to kind of have an opinion on something um, and be informed about that opinion and um, have data and observations that back that opinion, but then also to be able to combine that with holding that opinion fairly loosely and being able to have a rigorous debate or dialogue around that thing and then being able to say, you know what, I've changed my opinion. I- I've learned something new from you and I'm going to move my opinion somewhere else. Um, and I think if you can keep finding people that do that and can keep doing that at the the next level. Um, those are the kinds of people that will be able to grow with you as the company uh, grows. And that that is incredibly valuable. Now, you already talked about in the first segment that the year has seen a lot of change for Airtasker, but I actually think for all startups and really for all businesses everywhere. Do you have any insights on how a startup can be a success in this rapidly evolving environment? Well, I think it's um, a lot to do with how agile that you've um, allowed your organization to be and whether you've um, structured your, you know, your company and your team around you know, a fixed roadmap and solutions or whether you're more um, problem-oriented and you know, you're sharing context with um, the company as to what problems you're trying to solve. Um, I think if you anchor more towards being an outcomes-focused uh, company and a, a company focused on problems, um, then as change comes about, people can absorb that change and they still know what the big problems are. And so they can, they can change the solutions to, to go and solve those problems. 
Um, I think in a less agile kind of organization where it's built around, we are going to be delivering the following products in month one, two, three, four. And then the problem with that is that when things change and nobody wants that solution anymore, um, you're kind of back to square one. And it actually comes all back to you as the CEO or the founder to go and change everything for everyone. And um, one of the things that we saw um, that, that is really reflective of this is this is exactly how Airtask is actually structured as a, as a product, as a marketplace as well, which is we don't tell people this is what you can get done with Airtask. We say, hey, there's, you know, if you tell someone what your problem is, we can find you people that can go and solve your problems. And so um, I think that's reflective of the fact that when things changed, well, it wasn't all on me to go and solve all of the, those problems. It was actually our community and we could um, get those people to do that. So if you can build your organization in that way, I think that can be um, really powerful to adapt to change. Tim, this has been pure gold. Thank you so much for joining us once again on This Week in Startups Australia. Thanks for having me, Mark. Twister Series 9 is proudly sponsored by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform to build a beautiful online presence and run your business. With Squarespace, you can blog, publish content, promote your business, announce upcoming events and special projects, sell products and services of all kinds, and much more. No matter what you need to do online, Squarespace has the answer. They've got beautiful templates by world-class designers along with powerful e-commerce functionality to help you sell from day one. Everything is optimized for mobile right out of the box, plus it has built-in SEO, free and secure hosting, and 24-7 award-winning customer support. From websites to online stores, from marketing tools to analytics, Squarespace has what you need to succeed online. Go to squarespace.com twista for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, use the code twista to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash twista. Entrepreneurs love a good two-sided marketplace. You take a look at Airtasker, which has people who need jobs done on one side and then a whole army of people who want to do those jobs on the other. You take a look at eBay, who has a big marketplace of people with interesting things to sell and then a whole global marketplace of people who want to buy those things. Ditto for Alibaba. There are many examples of two-sided marketplaces and far more two-sided marketplaces have started than exist Today, the annals of technology are littered with so many versions of two-sided marketplaces that simply failed. Airtasker didn't fail. Nine years in, now that they're a public firm, we can see how much work is really involved in creating and sustaining a two-sided marketplace. Because think about this, two-sided marketplace effectively means that you're doubling the number of points of contact because your customers are coming at you from both sides. Your customers are the th people who are buying the services, but your customers are also the people who are selling those services. And 
those are very different segments. They have very different needs. And so in a lot of ways, what you've done is you've doubled the amount of work that you need to do to be able to meet all of the needs for all of your customers because you don't have just one class of customers or one set of products and services. But in fact, what you do is you have now a marketplace. So it's all products and all services to all people being delivered by all people. Now, that doesn't mean it's an insurmountable task. What it means is that task is now an execution task. And what Tim Fong has absolutely shown is that he has the capacity to be able to execute in that environment. Now, nine years seems like a long time. Again, when I entered this field, and I entered this field, say, almost 40 years ago, a normal runway for a technology company to go public would be seven to ten years. It was expected to be able to take that long to build the product, build the market, grow the market, and then actually get to the point where your financial situation was in good enough shape that you could go to the public markets for capital. And it's really, in some sense, a privilege to be able to do that, to be in such a good financial position that you can do that, and to be able to do that with a two-sided marketplace, where you have a list of customers and a list of providers, and they are doing the work of finding one another, to be able to sell their own products and services or buy those products and services. That's really something very special. And Interestingly, hearing Tim talk so much about flexibility, you understand why they actually have survived the pandemic as well as they have, because there's this idea embedded in everything that, in fact, if you can be flexible, if you can find the ambiguity and thrive in that ambiguity, you will have the space for your customers to be able to work out what their needs are and the providers to be able to work out how to provide the needs that those customers have. And you'll be able to marry both and help both and actually make money from both, and do it in a way that actually serves everyone involved. So Airtasker probably has a very bright future in front of it because what it's understood is the nature of the relationship that it is involved in, and Tim has built a firm that is designed to be flexibly serving the needs for all of those relationships. You're listening to This Week in Startups Australia. We will be right back. Twista Series 9 is proudly sponsored by Odoo. One of the toughest parts of building a company is choosing which tools and service providers to use. You want to pick the best solution for each department to help your employees succeed. Because they deserve the best, and you always want to be frugal and not spend too much. There are so many functions in a startup, and each space has endless vendors. Sales tools, email marketing, accounting, HR and payroll, project management, customer support, point of sale, e-commerce. It goes on and on, and eventually you end up with a Frankenstack of tools that cost a lot and don't integrate properly. Odoo is a fully customizable and fully integrated suite of business apps that lets you build and scale your stack as you scale your business. It's simple and modular, so you use what you need, and all of the apps integrate perfectly with each other. Plus, it's all open source, so you can spend capital on talent instead of expensive software. Take your pick from accounting, project management, invoicing, sales, marketing automation, a help desk, timesheets, inventory, and so much more. 
Your first app is free forever. And right now, Odoo is offering a $1,000 credit on your first implementation pack. That's not a joke. Take $1,000 off. Go to odoo.com slash twista to check it out. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash twista. Fortune favors the flexible. If we take anything away from Tim Fung's comments about success, that's what we need to understand. You have to be flexible in your thinking. You have to be flexible in your approaches. And you very much have to be flexible in your opinions. That doesn't mean that you're a reed bending in every single breeze, but it does mean that you realize that you are in a process and that what you understand today may not be what you understand tomorrow, and that you can adapt, and not just adapt, but you can do it with grace. Because I feel as though that's exactly where we get stuck. We don't want to be in ambiguity because when we change our position, we feel as though we've lost something rather than gaining something, rather than understanding that improving that position actually enhances our chances for success. Big thanks to Twista sponsors User Testing, Squarespace, and Odoo. Thanks to our production partners at UTS Startups for their assistance. Thanks to Tim Fung of Airtasker for making the time to come on to our show. Come visit our website at twistartupsaus.com. It's got everything. It's got all the shows, all the interviews, all the photos, and all the links to all the stories. So check it out at twistartupsaus.com. We'll be back next week with another great episode featuring successful Australian startups. Until then, this is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening to This Week in Startups Australia. 